An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have as our special guest, Alison McAdam. First, a disclosure. Allie is my niece. Now, a more important disclosure, this interview makes me nervous. I'm normally interviewing people on my turf, but Allison knows more, a lot more than I do, about podcasts and storytelling. As a producer and senior editor of NPR's All Things Considered for more than a decade, Allie helped shepherd that show's coverage of one financial crisis, two wars, and three presidential elections. She then became NPR's storytelling guru, which meant she guided some of the best radio and podcast talent in the world to become better at narrative storytelling. Today, Ali is a sought-after freelance audio editor whose work can be heard on such in-depth journalistic podcast series as The 13th Step, which tells of how women seeking to overcome drug addiction routinely became victims of sexual abuse by the very residential treatment staff who were supposed to help them, and the podcast 544 Days about journalist Jason Rezaian's imprisonment in an Iranian jail while international real politics swirled around his life or death situation. Ali works behind the scenes. She's rarely on mic, but that hasn't stopped her talent from shining through. She was awarded an evening fellowship at Harvard and believed the podcast she worked on about Larry Nasser, the former Olympics and college gymnastic coach who abused hundreds of young women, won the Peabody, DuPont Columbia, Scripps Howard, and Dark Moves. We're going to learn a lot about storytelling, and I can't wait. Welcome, Allie. Hi. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. So what's your origin story? How does someone become a storytelling guru. How did you become the person you are today? Well, I should say off the top that guru is not a word I would use, but but it's your podcast. Um, but uh, it's, yeah, it, it depends on how far you want me to go back because <laughs> I, I'll try and keep it short. But I think that um, it, it honestly starts very, very early when I learn as a kid that I love learning, but what I really love is learning through stories. So reading historical fiction for me was the thing that made me love history. Um, learning through the way that stories were concocted that took place in, you know, the Revolutionary War and followed some child somewhere um, really made me fall in love with the truth and the facts and want to know more. Um, I went to college as someone who thought I might be interested in journalism, but hadn't really found a place in it yet. Um, and I ended up 
kind of inventing a major that I didn't really know how to pursue that I called history and narrative. So I was attempting to study how uh, how the truth gets told and how different stories affect the way that we understand our history. I don't know that I did it all that well, but it really is a pretty straight line um, with the exception that, you know, when I left college in 1999, the only um, real narrative storytelling that was happening in, in public radio, which I had fallen in love with, was This American Life. It wasn't the world of today where tons of different companies and journalists are trying to do this in audio. And um, so I ended up spending about 15 years in daily news, which um, can be very narrative driven, um, but also you're just churning and churning and churning and you have to learn really fast and you have to learn to do things fast. Um, and it took me a while to kind of circle back to my early love um, of narrative. But um, once, once the podcast industry started um, emerging as a big deal, I, I didn't want to miss sort of, I didn't want to let it pass me by. And so I ended up leaving NPR and, um, and becoming a freelance editor. So I actually began my career post-college as a reporter in print journalism. It was the dark days, obviously. Um, and it was an aphorism in the newsroom that, quote, there are no boring stories, just bad reporters. And, and I'm not sure anyone believed it even then, but it did get us to try hard to make every story as accessible and relevant as we could. I'm not sure I succeeded. Let's get right to it. What makes a good story and what characterizes a story that's hard to tell? Oh, those are two, two very different questions. So let me try and take the first one. Um, I mean, of course, there's infinite answers to what makes a good story. And probably the ultimate answer is that the thing that makes a story good is the thing nobody could think to answer <laughs> when asked this question, the surprising element that that makes a story stand out. But I mean, to name some key things, I would say a question, a question in both the story, I mean, in the framing of the story and in the listener's mind that makes you want to know what's going on here or what will they find or will they solve the mystery? Um, if there isn't a question hanging over the story, then there's not a great reason to stick around you could also similarly frame that as a problem. There, it really helps to have some problem that someone is trying to solve. Obviously, compelling characters are pretty essential and often a central character or characters so that the mind can latch on to somebody doing something and struggling or trying to do a thing. From an audio perspective, I would add that... Um, a good story involves a, a couple particular kinds of tape. Active tape, we call it active sound in audio, and that means where you're actually hearing something happen, not just somebody telling a story or somebody reflecting on a moment, but you're in the moment hearing a thing happen. Um, remarkable number of things that might seem boring can be really, really interesting when framed properly as active sound. Emotion obviously can really help to tell a good story. I don't mean that in a 
overly sensational way, but, um, you know, we talk about good talkers and there's all sorts of kinds of good talkers. You'd be surprised sometimes at what ends up being good tape, but some, some sense in the voice of emotion or reflection, um, there's a lot of levels of information in the voice. A pause can mean a lot, you know, um, rhythm means a lot. And so good rhythm and pacing are, are essential, I think, to a good story. And then one other thing I'd add that I think I'm really drawn to um, as a journalist, not only in audio, but, but obviously in audio too, is a sort of a moral puzzle. I don't really want from the beginning of the story to to be sure what's right and wrong. I want to struggle with that and I I want to be presented with complexity and have to think alongside the storyteller um do what do I think about this? Do I think this is okay? Let's take not the inverse but but something a little orthogonal to that. What characterizes a story that's important but it's hard to tell? I mean, I guess in my view, every story is, is hard to tell, partly because I believe really deeply in not being predictable. I guess that's another aspect of, of a good story is if it's predictable, then why stick around? And so part of the challenge of telling a story is first choosing a story that's not predictable, but then also finding a way of... Um, beginning it, for example, that is not where your listener might assume you're going. I'll just give you one example. Um, in 544 Days, Jason Rezaian's podcast, most listeners probably already knew he had been in an Iranian prison and he had gotten out of an Iranian prison and here he was to tell the story. So that's known, and you might assume that we will immediately start telling the story of how he got stuck in an Iranian prison. But we started in a, in a very quirky and sideways place talking about um, this kind of scheme that he and his friend had cooked up when he was a, a young journalist just new to Iran, where he's, he's trying to um, bring avocados to Iran. And it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of not, but it stands in for a lot of aspects of the podcast that later kind of carry through the whole series. And we heard endlessly back from listeners about the avocados. Nobody expected that. Nobody expected it to begin there. And, and um, so, um, so that's part of the complexity is is finding ways to draw your listeners in in a way that they didn't expect. Now, I should also say, having worked on stories about sexual misconduct and political hostage taking, all of this, that the topics themselves are immensely complex. And so you have to really try and tease apart the important points that need to be made and then see them as building blocks and figure out how to position them in a way that listeners can actually digest them. And so that's where the pacing comes up, that you can't just throw everything at a listener. They can't, their ear doesn't work that fast. Their brain doesn't work that fast. And so you have to kind of introduce aspects of a complex story, you know, piece by piece. And that's why the editing process is so important, because you go through draft after draft after draft, and then you play it for new people who have a fresh ear, and then you play it for another new person. You mentioned active sound and good talkers and how fast a listener can absorb things. 
And what I get from that is what makes for good storytelling in audio isn't the same as what's in print, where you go back to it. In fact, I think you once wrote a whole guide explaining why that's true. Uh, to me, that's useful information for my audience, uh, for anyone who wants to tell a powerful story, even just someone who presents at a conference. So what are the major differences to keep in mind between writing a story and telling a story? I guess I would start, you have to think about what your voice is, and you have to think about how the listener experiences your story and how they uh, think as it's going along. So first of all, when I, I did a lot of this work with NPR training, when I was working there, there were a lot of journalists coming into radio from print. And it was a really kind of an unlearning and relearning process for those who really understood it, that you couldn't just take what you learned in print and translate it directly over to radio. And so a starting point was very short sentences. If you were to uh, record yourself talking and then transcribe it on a page, you would see that we speak, for the most part, much more simply than a lot of print journalists are taught to write. Um, we don't use a lot of internal clauses. I don't say John Lukumnik, who happens to be the uncle of my husband, is interviewing me right now. Like, I don't tell anybody that. I might break those thoughts into two sentences. John's interviewing me right now. He's my he's my husband's uncle. And that also tracks with how the the it makes it easier for the brain to take in. There are two thoughts. Let's break them into two sentences. Um, so we used to play with the leads of print stories and have people read them out loud and they're gasping for breath because these sentences are so long. But then there's also the question, I mean, short sentences don't necessarily get you voice. Um, writing for your voice can be really, really challenging. And what, what audio writers learn to do very early on is speak it before they write it because that's the best way to get the authentic voice. How would I say this? Not how would I write it and then let me see if I can read it without gasping for breath. A couple other um, key ideas are uh, from print. This is a bit of an old school idea anyway, but, but we know about the inverted pyramid where we, we front load the most important information and, um, and kind of move down from there. That doesn't work for radio, partly because, again, you're just throwing too much information at people, but also because the goal is for them to listen through the whole story. Because if they turn it off, you've lost them. Uh, they're gone, you know, whereas if they're reading a newspaper, maybe they'll just flip over to another story. So you, it's not to say that you bury the lead, uh, especially in news reporting, but, um, but you have to unfold information in a very different order than you might have learned to do as a print writer. How do you deal with the trade-off on love between the need for narrative clarity and clear purpose versus nuance and facts that just may not fit the through the through narrative? I, I mean, how do you keep it serious journalism, not sound by journalism, not something that's a polemic? That is always, always a fraught thing, and you are constantly making different editorial decisions about that. 
I think that I would have to draw a distinction between narrative podcasts right now that really exist for entertainment, primarily, I should say, and narrative podcasts that really strongly identify with with the ethics of journalism, because I think that different decisions get made there. But there's also crossover, you know, I... Even in the most serious journalism, you struggle with the fact that you're trying to explain something or you feel like you need to digress and it keeps throwing the story off. Um, so it's absolutely true that you have to um, take things out. You, you really cannot say as much as you want to say. And the most common problem I experience when listening to drafts of, of um, other people's stories is that they've stuffed it too full. And... Even if they're sort of checking a box in a way that, well, we have to say this and we have to say this. The obligatory stuff is usually where the red flags are. You say you have to say it, but as the listener's not going to hear it. Um, and so just saying, well, it's there, it's in the script, doesn't, doesn't achieve the purpose. And so streamlining your story and removing details that aren't essential to the story is sometimes sort of, the most ethical thing you can do because you're helping avoid listener confusion. That said, you know, the work that I do, I feel really strongly that the nuances should be present. It like keeps me up at night worrying that people who know more about the topics than I do would consider the work simplistic or you know, missing key points. Um, you know, and, and so part of, Part of that sometimes is how you are transparent, how the, the host, reporter, whoever's telling the story is transparent. Sometimes you have to say, this is a really, really complicated topic and we're not gonna be able to get to all of it. I mean, you just straight up tell the listener that. Um, and you acknowledge that you can't do everything. Just as an example, in the 13th step, we had a part of an episode that's all about um, some of the challenges in um, AA and 12-step approaches to handling substance use disorder and ways in which AA, which is so ubiquitous and has helped so many people, can actually be really harmful. And that was a really challenging thing to talk about because um, people feel really strongly about it both ways. And you have to go into it trying to tell your listeners a lot of people have been helped by this, but we're here to talk about some of the ways in which it's been harmful. We don't want to disrespect the help, but that's not the purpose of our story. Um, and so the benefit of longer form narrative, too, is that you have time to say that. If, if you're just telling a four-minute story, it can be that much harder, and you do have to strip things like that out. There was another example in the 13th step in one of the last episodes. You had a woman who ran a um, safe space for women who were yeah. trying to uh, detoxify in Worcester, Massachusetts. And um, she, to my ear, came off as a little too good to be believed, but nonetheless, a very sympathetic character. And then the reporter revealed that some weeks after taping, she tried to get in touch with this woman and she was no longer employed on the employer, the, the not-for-profit that was running the safe space said she'd always be part of the program and said very nice things about her. And the way that you dealt with it there was the reporter just said, I'm still processing. I don't know what this means, right? 
Um, do, do you at that point also think about whether or not all the tape that you used previously should be used? Or, I mean, you chose to use it with this. Yeah. I don't want to call it no. this, but this caveat at the end. Thank you for bringing that up. That's a great example because truly that was all playing out about a week before we launched the podcast. And that was actually months after the interview had been done. And, you know, at the end of the process, you circle back to your sources. And the reporter was finding that she couldn't, that she couldn't reach her. And we were all absolutely tearing our hair out. And um, the reporter was talking to the organization to try to understand what was going on. Because again, we, we didn't know if we had to cut the entire scene or, or what, because we didn't know what was going on. And we, we like, I mean, sleepless nights, probably tears. It was really complicated and it was playing out right before we, we published. And we ultimately decided that, um, that this, what she had described and her, personal history, which was of um, being a sex worker to support her substance use, um, which is such a common, common thing, and then um, wanting to help women and provide them a safe space to recover, especially women who had, ex who had been sex workers. She, everything she told us was true and we just needed to be transparent and say, we don't know. I mean, we literally at that point did not know what had happened. And we just said that because none of this is because addiction is so complicated. And we I, I hope it worked for you. But um, in a way, I've had people tell me that it made it made it a better story. And obviously, I wouldn't wish, you know, something bad on this on this uh interviewee but um but it was a way of embracing the complexity of addiction let's broaden it out a little what's the future of serious journalism we're going to put it all on your head Ali, because <laughs> it seems as if every journalistic endeavor no matter what the platform is trying to figure out a business model that will work in the mid-21st century serious multi-part podcasts haven't really found a robust business model Newspapers, television, cable news are also challenged. I mean, the New York Times seems to be spending all its resources on finding games that people can play or buying the athletic to attract eyeballs. Uh, partisan news outlets, on the other hand, seem to thrive by publishing stories that confirm their readers or listeners or watchers' pre-existing beliefs. And I hate to say it, but what reason is those types of stories are linear and they're easier to follow. There are heroes and villains. Do you ever have any, op they may not be accurate, right? but they're heroes and villains. Um, do you have any optimism that we'll ever get to a place where serious nonpartisan journalism is again, not just the norm, but also profitable? Or am I, uh, idealizing a past that never was or you know where are we headed and what's the future of serious journalism yeah that's a big <laughs> a big question and um you know i would say off the bat that i'm not a, a 
you know, I'm not an expert in in the business of media, although I read about it a lot, and so I I take interest. But, um, but I I I think that I obviously only see parts of this through my work. Of course, journalism and media were never static. There there wasn't necessarily a golden age, or if if there was a golden age, it was leaving a lot of people and a lot of voices out. Um, I'm sure I don't need to explain that to your listeners. And so there are ways in which um, journalism has been grappling with that too, and um, in some ways improving and, and um, becoming more inclusive. But I can't say that I see some some great, you know, <laughs> golden future where where the the money issues are solved i feel really hopeful about nonprofit journalism it's very hard for me to see with some notable exceptions how for-profit journalism can ever be fully fully committed to to serious ethical journalism um when the money is is what is driving it but you're talking to a public media person and as much as nonprofits can be a kind of a mess of their own making um i think that that when you take when you have a nonprofit model and and the work that I've done since I left public media, I've worked with for-profit companies and I've worked with nonprofit companies. And it's been the nonprofit companies that were really able to embrace the most serious journalism. That's not the journalism that gets, you know, the most ears necessarily. And it's not the journalism that gets the most ads. Um, and so obviously there are problems there. But man, do I wish that you know, some organizations and people with a lot of money would really lean into supporting nonprofit public service journalism. And some do, and, you know, we need more. And that doesn't solve everything, but um, but it's it's something I look to with some hope. Okay, we've had this very serious conversation dealing with topics like Iranian hostages and sex abuse and serious journalism Let's go from the sublime to the ridiculous. One of the things I really love about doing this podcast are the sometimes absolutely absurd things I learn about our guests when I do research on them. So, and there really isn't another way to ask this question. I understand you have a jockstrap, an athletic supporter named after you, and that it was kidnapped for ransom. I'm sorry, I need an explanation, please. Sure. Okay. You've done, you've done some Googling. So this is all because of some friends from college who, um, in the early 2000s started a, a, a competition, um, when the NCAA hockey playoffs and championship occurred. And it was something that most of us knew absolutely nothing about, which was kind of the joke of it all. And they would send out a bracket and we would all fill out our brackets and have various wacky ways of picking who we thought would win. Um, and I, due to absolutely no ability on my part, somehow managed to win the first year. 
And so this competition was called the McAdam Cup, and it will forever, as long as it exists, be called the McAdam Cup. And then a couple of years later, or I'm not sure exactly when, um, these very humorous friends introduced the actual cup into it, which is a jockstrap that gets passed around from winner to winner and has in Sharpie marker the winners of each year written on it. Um, I do not think, I, I won one other year a long time ago and haven't won since, so I have never personally had the jockstrap in my home. Um, but it has been passed around. And then last year, these friends orchestrated a huge scheme uh, to celebrate the 20th year of the NCAA hockey brackets by uh, kidnapping the cup and photographing it in multiple parts of the world and creating this kind of year-long uh, scavenger hunt that ended in the reveal of, I, I don't even fully remember where it was. Well, as long as you're on sports, you do have one true <laughs> passion in your life beyond your family and storytelling, and that's soccer. Now, yeah. I played soccer in high school. I even lettered and was recruiting. Ooh. But you love soccer at a different level. The only, the only way I can explain this to listeners is it's sort of like someone who's a yoga freak or loves Eastern philosophies. It permeates your life. What is it about soccer that you played it and that makes you such a fan of it and it's such a big part of your life? Yeah, I mean, starting with just, I, I've played it since I was seven or eight. I still play. I, I never stopped playing soccer. It's, now it's me and a bunch of 40 and 50-year-olds kind of like stumbling around on a field. But um, I am happier when I play soccer than at almost any other time. It's occurred to me as I've attempted um, meditation and, and mindfulness <laughs> that like the only place I'm really able to achieve that is on a soccer field where I look up after an hour and go, wow, I haven't thought about anything or any problems or anything but the present. I've been totally in the present. Um, so I just, I, I absolutely love it. And more recently, I've embraced fandom. Um, I think it's not that I wasn't a fan before. I've been following the U.S. women's national team since, you know, the mid-90s. But uh, I've recently become part of a premier league, um, fantasy league, which is just, it's just so much better than doom scrolling the internet. And, and it, it just feels like a healthy, fun thing. It also involves, you know, funny emails sent between the people who are all over the world as part of this little fantasy league. And... I have managed to, although I really don't want to brainwash him, I have managed to bring my son into this fandom. And he is now, in ways that I'm not even involved, getting getting fascinated by soccer stats and stats about stadiums and, and all of this. So he's he's kind of joining joining in. And then, of course, we're speaking during the Women's World Cup, um, which is always both fun and heartbreaking and fascinating. So you're catching me at a time when I've been waking up at weird hours to watch soccer games that are in Australia and New Zealand. So it just, it just makes me happy. And I should add, perhaps, if you'll let me spool this out a little bit, that being part of a soccer team since I was a kid... I've started to see a lot of analogies to journalism, or at least to my work in journalism. It started by 
thinking about daily news and the way that, you know, a soccer game never stops. There aren't timeouts. Um, and the same with daily news. You just keep moving, you pivot, you run, you, you take a shot, even if, you know, it's not the best shot. And then you move on because there's nothing you can do. You know, we screwed that story up or, you know, we didn't get it exactly as we wanted, but guess what? We got to move on because that story's over or that day is over. But also the teamwork of soccer, making journalism and especially audio journalism is fundamentally a team sport. You cannot do it alone. And, you know, there's always going to be some people who stand out more than others. You know, the public face of something gets more attention than the people behind the scenes. But fundamentally, it doesn't work unless the team works. And I really have never been into uh, doing things alone or on my own. I get honestly just up in my head and anxious way too quickly. But when I'm working with a team and helping other people in a team, that's where I feel like I thrive. So uh, that's my, you know, soccer metaphor for uh, for journalism. I normally um, end this with a series of short questions and answers. And one of them is normally asking my guests, what music do you listen to? But we're going to put that ahead of the short answers and give you a little more space for two reasons. Okay. First... One of the few times um, after your early career that you were in front of the mic recording was a first-person piece you did for NPR about the mixtape you recorded to be played as you were in labor when you gave birth to your son. Uh, second, you were a backup singer in a band. So tell us what was on the mixtape and why about the band and what sort of music you like. So... um the mixtape was, um, I very rarely do stories of my own, but I think one of the things that really drew me into audio production originally was how much I loved working with the intersections of music and, and voice. And, um, as a, as a musician, I should say, I'm, I, I grew up playing violin, which I, I kind of hated, but but I became a singer and just, I, I love music and a lot of people in audio are, are musical. It's kind of an ear training thing, you know? So I was really into this challenge of what kind of music would you want to listen to as you were giving birth? What theme or, or, um, and of course it's totally subjective. It's not like there's one answer, but, um, I ended up constructing a story using some of these songs that I had chosen and trying to explain um, my theme was about the rhythm and the beat that birth is sometimes, there's kind of this cliche of like the kind of very flowy, like new agey music getting played. And to me that didn't embody birth at all, that birth is this incredibly giving birth is this incredibly athletic, hard, you know, painful um, thing that requires energy and, and movement. And so I really was leaning into the rhythm of music. And that was what I tried to explain in the story by weaving these songs, you know, in and out of, of the story. Um, the, the, the band was definitely sort of a little moment in time, but it was a lot of fun. It actually was, um, 
connected to a, a journalism fundraiser that used to happen in D.C. where bands of journalists would get together. And so a friend of mine who was a political reporter had a band and he needed singers. And so I got to be like a little, you know, rock star for 15 minutes, um, or at least it felt that way to me. You know, we performed at a club called the Black Cat, which is a known, you know, cool club in, in D.C. And um, and it was a blast. And I think we didn't we didn't win. We should have won. We didn't win. We got second place or something like that. But the point was just to raise money for for I can't remember what the cause was, but um, but something related to journalism. And it, and it was fun. And I honestly would really like to do more of that. It's something that's kind of missing in my life. OK, now let's finish with some short Q&A. All right. How do you relax? Ugh. Um, with some challenge, <laughs> it's something I want to get better at, but I think the moment when I, uh, get into bed and open my book is a huge moment of relaxation for me. I've developed sort of a bad habit of really only reading my books at, at bedtime. And I would like, that's part of probably being a parent and someday in the future I will work on being able to read at other times of day too but um I cannot sleep without without reading a book so that's that's a huge moment of relaxation I uh enjoy making uh cocktails myself and so sometimes it's fun at you know cocktail hour to mix something up and sit down on the front porch or the back porch and and um just chill out but I struggle a lot to relax. There's times when I know I should be relaxing and I'm sitting there fidgeting. So <laughs> I'll take I'll take advice. When you lay down and read your book, what are you reading right now? I, I jump between, um, I'll just give you a frame quickly. I jump between a mixture of narrative nonfiction. I read a lot of narrative nonfiction. And these days, um, basically, young adult fantasy, which my son and I are now reading a lot of the same books. But for me, that's um, kind of something I read as a kid and have sort of read over the years and have come back to at times when I really needed to clear my brain. And it's just pure fun and easy. Um, and then every once in a while, I pick up a good immersive novel. So just the other day, I finished uh, Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver, which is a really, really wonderful novel that takes place in Appalachia um, amidst um, the opioid crisis and all the sort of downstream effects of that. I really was staying away from that topic for a while because I was working so hard on it for the 13th Step, the podcast about um, addiction treatment. And um, now that that's out and I've had a little space, I'm picking up some more books about it. So I'm about halfway through a book by Beth Macy, who's a journalist who writes a lot about um, addiction, um, and her book is called Raising Lazarus. So I'm back to kind of toggling between novels and, and nonfiction. But I, I do all of this just because I love to learn. I, I feel I don't have any graduate degrees. I went to college, I became a journalist, and I just keep learning through what I read. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you be? Well, you're asking me that at a funny time because I've just come back from a long sought after vacation and 
feeling very fortunate about that. And so I will just say that we were in Switzerland and I really, with some embarrassment, was hoping for Switzerland to be every stereotype I imagined it could be, the mountains and the air and the cowbells ringing across the, you know, high meadows. And it was all of that. <laughs> and I loved it. And I want to go back. So uh, I'll, I'll say Switzerland. This is the um, Alison McAdam as Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. Oh, man. Yeah. That's, that's, um, you can see why she's singing about the hills being alive. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? Oh, the one thing questions are, you know, always impossible to answer. But um, <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind is chill out. I need that too. I need to be told that as well. Thank you. You've been listening Thanks, to Outside In with John Lukumnik, and we've been very pleased to have him as our special guest, Allison McAdam. Uh, Allie is, as you have heard, an expert in how to tell a story. Um, you should check out a number of our podcasts. You can just Google her, but the most recent is 13th Step, which tells of uh, how women at a very vulnerable point in their life seeking to come off of addiction or um, sexually abused by the people who are supposed to help her, help them. The podcast believed on all sorts of crimes about uh, Larry Nasser, but if, if we want to get away from uh, um, sexual abuse topics, check out 544 Days about the imprisonment in jail of the journalist Jason Rezaian. Ali, thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me, John. It was fun. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohigasa, John Lukonik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.